This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. But where is me in this picture? Where is me, my family, my friends? Because I'm sorry, but I am not driving Lada and I'm not Babushka. And that was when I realized that I had been complicit in um, something that journalists do the world over in every conflict, and that is to kind of contribute to creating this divide between peacetime and wartime, or between us and them. Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Martin, and I'm the Outreach Director at the Davis Center. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with two journalists, one British and one Ukrainian, who met covering the recent conflict in Ukraine and became collaborators on a unique project that we'll discuss today. Anastasia Taylor-Lind is a photojournalist and educator, a TED Fellow, a 2016 alumna of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism Fellowship Program, and the author of the book Maidan, Portraits from the Black Square. Alisa Sapova, a freelance producer and reporter for the New York Times in Ukraine, is Harvard's first Ukrainian Neiman Fellow. Prior to her work with the New York Times, she was a journalist and news editor for Donbass, the largest newspaper and news website in the Donetsk region of Ukraine. As you, our listeners, likely already know, in late 2013, Kiev was the scene of peaceful protests that eventually turned violent and destructive, as citizens demanded a path to European integration for Ukraine. Pro-Russian protests in eastern Ukraine, particularly in Luhansk and Donetsk, a region commonly referred to as the Donbass, escalated into armed conflict between separatist forces with support from Russia and the Ukrainian government. Elisa and Anastasia were living and working in Ukraine at this time, and will discuss covering this conflict and how it changed their conception of reporting on conflict more generally. Thank you both for being with me today for this conversation. Oh, a pleasure, really. Thank you for inviting. Yes. So let me start with you, Anastasia. Could you tell us what brought you to Ukraine in 2014? Mm. Actually, um, I was working on another project about um, population decline in Europe, and of all of, even before the war, of all the countries in uh, in Europe, Ukraine had the lowest life expectancy. And of Ukraine, the Donbass region had the lowest life expectancy of, from the country. So I was on my way to Donetsk to report on why men were dying too soon. Mm-hmm. And I arrived in February 2014, flew into um, Kiev and had intended to make my way eastward and um, unexpectedly ended up photographing in Maidan Square and stayed to photograph the end, if one can say, the end of the revolution and, and actually never made it all the way to Donetsk to do that project. Mm-hmm. So it was, une- it was unexpected and unplanned. Mm-hmm. Finding myself covering a news event, I, I don't cover breaking news. Um, and so when I started to understand that this was something I wanted to tackle visually, I knew that I had to do that in a way that in, uh, contributed something that was not already being given to the visual and historical and the journalistic coverage of what was happening. I decided to set up a makeshift portrait studio inside the barricades in Maidan and make very formal, medium format film portraits of the men who fought the running street battles and uh, eventually of the women who came to lay flowers and mourn the people who'd been killed. It was in Maidan that I really started um, questioning what things looked like and to who. And my artistic reaction came about because I already knew what Maidan looked like before I got there. You know, it was uh, the square was black and smoky, and there were burning tires. It was kind of apocalyptic. At times, there was ice covering burnt-out um, vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, for a, for a photographer, it was 
easy, but also very visually seductive. Mm -hmm. So you knew what it looked like from other people's photojournalistic representations of of the conflict on the square. And also it meant that um, protesters looked like protesters. They were intimidating. They had chosen makeshift uniforms themselves. Like They looked like characters in a protest. I'd watched... Mm -hmm. um, uh, protests around the Arab world during the Arab Spring and it was something similar young men throwing Molotovs and rocks and things like that so it both fit what was sort of an existing narrative that we already knew but right. it didn't necessarily expound upon what was actually happening right in the space right and also just from my personal perspective as an individual experiencing this um, I wanted to kind of pick people out of this environment, at least to know their names, at least to be able to look at them on their own as individuals instead of, um, you know, in this archetype of a protester. Of course, of course, the people are protesters, but it felt important to me that I picked people out. Well, Alisa, I would love to hear about your experience, which was was different from Anastasia's in um, covering this conflict. You were reporting for Donbass in eastern Ukraine when tensions began to arise. Could you talk a little bit about your experience of of living in that region as tensions, but also reporting on what was happening in your hometown? Yeah. So actually, when everything was happening on Maidan, uh, people who were in Donetsk, like everyone was covering Maidan, but there were like several million people in the East and nobody cared about their existence. And we were just kind of sitting and this was the region that elected the President Viktor Yanukovych and the region that supported him. And people were kind of sitting like this in front of their TVs and computers. We were just watching all these online translations from Maidan all the time, trying to figure out what's going on. And we were kind of, people were kind of scared. And uh, me, at that moment, I was uh, a news editor at the Donbass newspaper. I was trying, I initiated uh, a series of publications about people from Donetsk who went to Maidan to participate in it, explaining why they're doing it, to try to explain to people here that these people are not uh, some nationalistic uh, or something of this kind. They are fighting for, against, they're fighting for something good. Um, yeah, so, but, but people still in mass, people were scared and people were frustrated and didn't know what's going, what's going to happen. And of course we had like uh, wonderful Mr. Putin next to us who was happy, who was unhappy with Maidan and who was happy to use this frustration of people to start something, something strange. Yeah. So when it started in spring of 2014 in Donetsk, for for the for the beginning when the, they were just protests uh, like they were today there is pro Russian meeting tomorrow there is pro Ukrainian meeting day after tomorrow like they are fighting each other in the beginning we still tried to cover it just mm-hmm. in my paper but then um, the representatives of Donetsk People's Republic came to auditorial office and uh, said that either you work for us or you close so the Donetsk People's Republic were closed my paper they yeah. closed your paper and yeah. so then what did people do to get information about what was happening locally. First, like uh, the smart thing from the point of view of propaganda, I think from informational war, what DPR did right away, they closed all the real local media entities and created on their basis like their own media entities, so that some people they wouldn't even notice. Mm-hmm. Okay, there is there is something on TV. There is like websites. There are there's no papers. void. There's no void of information. Yes, it's just... but just it's like absolutely different information. Yeah. And me at that moment, me and my colleagues, we were kind of 
shocked because of what has happened and uh, then uh, but then uh, uh, like foreign media started getting interested started coming and so i started working as a fixer mm-hmm. as a like local producer could you explain trans- what a fixer yes. is to people who don't yes. know what that means fixer is somebody on the somebody local on the spot mm-hmm. who uh, kind of produces and translates and guides and helps foreign uh, media teams to work there mm-hmm. to make connections with locals to make sure yes, that the yes, foreign yes. teams can mm-hmm. hit the ground running as it were when covering right. a news story Right. Um, and did that bring you to Kiev or did you stay in the Donbass or is it? I was kind of in a big mess mm-hmm. because I, I also lived just near the Donetsk airport mm-hmm. where like the epicenter of fighting was. And uh, with my boyfriend, we were kind of lost. We, we went to Kiev. Then when I started go- getting all these job offers to work as a fixer, I was coming back, traveling to Kiev, to Donetsk. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. So I was like on the move all the time. So what brought the two of you together and um, helped kick off your collaboration? I start with yeah. my perspective. So when I was, <clears throat> I was working with like many good and famous photographers and they were doing good and brilliant pictures uh, about the conflict. But at some point I came across some contradiction because like for me, it was not only work, for me it was very personal. I was seeing like my own city, my own neighborhood being destroyed. And then... Uh, um, uh, like all the photographers would come to me with uh, approximately one idea. They would say like, oh, it's Ukraine, you know, we want to make a picture of this old Lada car on some destroyed village and this babushkas with bags, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, but where is me in this picture? Mm-hmm. Where is me, my family, my friends? Because I'm sorry, but I am not driving Lada and I'm not babushka and all my friends are ni- neither. We are like young people who look uh, just like anyone. And so from the point of view of like mainstream media, we don't represent Ukraine or some mm-hmm. traditional narrative about Ukraine, but we are still there and we want to tell our story. So I was kind of confused about it. And we met because um, Alyssa was working as a fixer mm-hmm. and I came to the east to work near Slavyansk. We met Slavyansk. near Slavyansk um, together with a colleague of ours. And we worked together maybe for a week. I had gone there on a small production grant from National Geographic. And I was also looking for these types of pictures. Or I, you know, In one sense, I wanted to show what the war looked like. And so in order to show what it looked like, we were like driving with our driver every day to like uh, villages that had been heavily shelled or the places. Where, yeah, like the places where um, the war was most visually evident. But I suppose the thing is that for the most most part, you don't actually see the war. And maybe that's truer to the experience. So I was kind of I was making stereotypical pictures of the conflict but feeling frustrated creatively. Yes, because in fact, uh, the place, uh, the place of conflict, is like it can be like a big city, and uh, the eighty percent of city can look totally totally normal. Mm-hmm. And then all the photographers they come to one part of it which mm-hmm. is damaged, and they all focus on it. But mm-hmm. all the other stuff stays uh, behind the skin. But then the question is. I mean, because I ask myself this all the time too. Okay, if you avoid those areas and you go to the areas that look normal, mm-hmm. how can you show there's a war there? Mm-hmm. So it's right. like, yeah. I mean, basically, in my I, the conclusion I came to is that photography as a medium is is inadequate alone. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That was the conclusion eventually mm-hmm. that like we need photographs, but we also need something else. Mm-hmm. And so that sounds like it's what spurred the project that you embarked on together, which is Welcome to Donetsk, the memorial mm-hmm. project. Could you talk a little bit about that? Mm. So when we were in Slavyansk, um, I went one day into the post office there and asked what postcards they had for sale. And I did it in a few towns. I was just interested to know what these places looked like before I saw a place that had been affected by war. In the post office in Slavyansk, um, I found a series of um, beautiful touristic postcards of Donetsk. And unusually, it was written on them, uh, Welcome to Donetsk in English. And it turned out there was a series. And when I found the postcards, I was utterly sort of affected by them and stunned. And actually, uh, finding them meant that I called my editor and I stopped photographing and I left the east and I just realized that I couldn't find a way an adequate way as a photographer as a photojournalist to talk about what was happening there and the shock came just from realizing so simply how similar to my hometown Donetsk looked and that was when I realized that I had been complicit in um, something that journalists do the world over in every conflict and that is to kind of contribute to creating this divide between um, peacetime and wartime or between us and them. The exoticism of, of someone like Alyssa, who was would have just been my friend Alyssa three years ago, but now mm-hmm. she's an IDP yeah. or a civilian or a, 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 a separatist accomplice. Or... Right. <laughs> or at the very least, Alyssa from Donetsk. Like, uh, probably if I was just a journalist and they came to some to Syria, I'd be like, oh, these smart journalists, they do this, they just go and uh, to the trenches and uh, film uh, shooting, this is what I should do. But because I was from there, I was always asking, like, me, okay, me, I'm maybe one of the very few people who are from here, and we have a, a opportunity to tell our story to the world. So how would I tell the story so that people really empathize? Mm-hmm. I couldn't forget about the postcard. So a year later, I went back to Ukraine. This was my first time going to Donetsk. I went to Donetsk with Elisa and we collected the postcards and then decided to start creating a list of the names of people who'd been killed on all sides of the conflict and decided to write these names onto the postcards and then send them to people all over the world, strangers Mm -hmm. all over the world. So what was your intention when sending these postcards out into the world? What was your hopes for what it might accomplish I wanted people to have the same reaction that I'd have just to stop and think they're just like me yeah that could happen to me and to my city and also to do it in a personal way um inside people's homes so uh using a social media call out uh we started posting on Instagram Twitter Facebook uh, as part of uh you know my work about the war in Ukraine, I'm going to be sending postcards. If you would like to receive one, please send your address. And so initially, of course, it was people who were in my social media network, um, some, sometimes people that I knew. But as the project grew and people started to share um, the social media call out and then people started to receive their postcards and post post about having received it, we would then get other people emailing us saying, here's my address. I'd like to be part of the project too. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it really perfectly helps to answer the, the struggle that you have because on one side of the postcard, you have the implicit violence of somebody who has lost their life. 
but you're allowed to have the personal connection, you know, at least through a name and through some little details. But on the other side of the postcard, you have this beautiful picture mm. of what Donetsk in some ways still looks like and in some ways used to look like. Mm. So you have that sort of duality right there on a one, you know, small piece of paper. Yeah, and here I have to confess that uh, um, even the reaction of people receiving these postcards, uh, it uh, surprised me. Mm -hmm. Because me, I me was too. I was kind of a bit blind to till the very end. Because even though I was asking myself how to show it in a more personal way, even though I was participating in the project, but I was a bit skeptic since the beginning. Like, But then when I saw people, just tens of them posting, they didn't just post uh, the picture of um, postcards. They would light candles. They would bring flowers to commemorate these people. Some of them, they would uh, um, uh, make little research in the Internet. And some of them, they would find information about people killed. Some of people would write feedback, like one woman who lives in India, she wrote that uh, um, when the postcard arrived, I was not at home and my boyfriend uh, found it and he didn't understand what, what does it mean. And he thought that it's somebody of our friends being killed and he was in shock and he was trying to, to remember who it is. He had several suggestions. He was so shocked. But then I came home and I explained to him what it meant. But he was still under a big influence and he calmed down. But then he started, he opened internet and he started reading about the conflict in Ukraine and about people being killed. So like we managed to deliver not just the information, but the feeling about it. And more than one and a half thousand people reacted like this, mm -hmm. sharing pictures or the stories and almost always the names of the person who'd been killed mm -hmm. on social media with their family at the dinner table that night, with their friends. The really interesting thing was that it wasn't Elisa and I telling somebody else about the war in Ukraine and what was happening there. And the postcard was a catalyst so that they told the story. And and often they knew more about the person who'd been killed than we did because each, each people had the opportunity to research that themselves. I think there was something as well in like the postcard coming through the door. People told us they felt a sense of responsibility, like they should do something. Mm -hmm. And also the like the world in which we live, the reality in which we live now is becoming like more and more um, virtual, more and more. So like we um, consume information, but it's all like just something we cannot touch. And these postcards, they are material. The material, you can feel that, okay, you get this piece of paper exactly from there, from the war, the, the place of war. So I am wondering about how both the coverage of the conflict when you were reporting on it uh, in 2014 and after, and also this project, how that has impacted how you conceive of your work, both of you, moving forward, both as a print journalist and as a uh, primarily photojournalist, but also mm. a print journalist. I actually feel that uh, um, at this point, I even kind of believe in... Uh, this new, unusual, non-journalistic ways a bit more. Because what I found out working with uh, like big international media, that it's great, you can deliver this information, you know, and uh, it's like more objective and so on. But at the same time, it's like um, a big informational McDonald's where there is uh, there are deadlines and the person this person is like brilliant famous journalist but this brilliant famous journalist he makes like all these 10 years the 10 hours long flight to ukraine then the next day comes to donetsk and the next evening 
uh, he or she should file the story. And they're just like, oh, okay, we have two hours, let's go, let's do this, let's do that. But again, me being there, I see some other problems that uh, like big media outlets are not interested in. They're like just, oh, no, it's not that important enough. And for me, it is important enough. So I'm now I'm thinking about what else I could do. I'm even, I'm not sure, I don't really know yet, but even I'm thinking that maybe after this Neiman year, I would come back and try to work uh, uh, like as a kind of activist to deliver some help to people on the spot, not just writing about it. Because I feel now that it's like a bit different things. Writing on the big scale is important and interesting, but it's not exactly what I want, how I want to help my people. Yeah, I stopped working editorially in the last two years, actually. Since since I started working in Ukraine, I, I you know, I used to, I used to work for weekly and monthly magazines and sometimes newspapers all over the world. I don't do that anymore. My concern is just to tell stories about wars and what is happening in places like Donetsk in a personal, intimate way that moves people to react in some way. I don't believe I'm going to stop the war in Ukraine from writing postcards. But I don't believe I'm going to stop the war in Ukraine by photographing it for a newspaper either. Art doesn't stop wars. Journalism doesn't stop wars either. But I do think it's important to understand what's happening to other people in other places. And as such, I suppose storytelling is the thread here my concern is just is just to tell stories in a meaningful way that move people it sounds so simple i mean it's so hard to do it's as so well hard. i don't have that that's that that piece of connection yeah which is what you were able to yeah. accomplish no. with the donetsk project sometimes i wonder if um uh, also i see this postcards as like a bit a bit like vaccination mm. from the war because I wonder if uh, people in some amount of people in Donetsk, when it was just in the very beginning, if they had this emotional experience of looking at some the name of a killed person and trying to realize and feel this connection, maybe they would be uh, not that enthusiastic about, oh, let's go fight against this, against this, because like you feel what can happen. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I mean, for me, photographing or using pictures and telling stories using pictures is a way to try and bridge the gap between experiencing war either as it is for Alyssa as somebody who who for whom war arrives in her hometown or for someone like me where I get on a plane and I go to places where there is war and and experience it but either way to bridge that gap between the experience and then the photograph or the visual representation of it and I think that's the struggle to um, close the gap between just looking at a photograph as opposed to actually looking at it. It seems naive, but I often thought if I could take somebody by the hand, stand and watch somebody die pitifully and alone as they take their last breaths, as I have done on occasion, I wonder if they would still support foreign wars or if they would, or warmongering politically, or I don't know, just like. I know you can't do that to everyone. I wish you could, because I really think if people knew what war was like and if they had to watch it, the dirtiness, the horrendousness of it, the the sickening feeling that you have when you see people do that to each other, then they would understand and avoid it. <laughs> yeah, like you cannot bring everybody by hand, but you can find some other way to transport this uh, emotional experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, ladies, both so much for our conversation today and for sharing uh, your personal experience and uh, the news about your project. And again, 
Thank you. Thanks for Thank having you. us. <laughs>